Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Revelations 2, 12 through 17. This is the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Paragum write, The words of him who has the sharp, two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who talked Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, as we come to your word, we're so thankful. And uh, only you, Father, know the unique needs of each heart listening today. I just pray that uh, you would speak to us in that unique way, that we would be convicted where we need to be convicted, and that we would be comforted where we need to be comforted, all for the glory of Jesus and by your Spirit, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. You may have heard the expression, if you want to know what water is, don't ask a fish. This sits on a key truth that it's difficult to discern the characteristics of your environment if you don't know any differently. This is certainly true when it comes to idols in our own culture. It's easy for us American Christians to point out the godlessness of witchcraft or black magic creeping into an African church, for instance. We might say, how could anyone get sucked into that kind of false teaching? It's so obvious to us, it is unbiblical. But the particular idols and godlessness of our own culture are obviously much more difficult to see because we're so accustomed to our environment. But another culture might wonder how we could be so blind. There are false ideas we can assume without thinking because it is the water in which we've always been swimming. And it's those kind of idols that are the most dangerous because they're the easiest for us to tolerate and the most likely areas in which we compromise our Christian faith. Pergamum is the third church in our series of letters to the outposts, and as we will see, it was a church that was in grave danger because it tolerated the false teaching of its culture. The origin of the city's name means citadel. If we could have the slide up, you can see that the Pergamum stood atop a hill about a thousand feet high. In terms of Greek culture, it was an advanced city. One Roman author at the time called it by far the most distinguished city in Asia, this region of the churches we've looked at. It boasted a huge library, 
second in size only to the great Alexandrian library in Egypt. In terms of the letter to the church at Pergamum, the Lord has some positive words of commendation for them, but also some negative words of warning for them. Two weeks ago, we saw that the church at Ephesus was faced with false teaching and to their credit resisted it. Last week, we saw that the church in Smyrna was faced with persecution and to their credit endured it. This week, we will see that Pergamum was faced with both false teaching and persecution. And the Lord commends them for enduring persecution, but rebukes them for tolerating false teaching. So first, let's look at his words of commendation. And I invite you to follow along in your bulletin sermon outline. Commendation for their exceptional endurance. Let's read together again verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. The Lord emphasizes his knowledge of where the church resides. And twice he knows that Satan dwells there. In fact, he says Satan's throne is there. We'll talk a minute in a minute about what that might mean. But first I want you to see that the Lord has them there. Their outpost is in a difficult area, and he doesn't tell them to leave the area. Instead, he commends them for their endurance. He says Satan's throne is there. We can't be exactly sure what that means, but it sounds pretty bad, doesn't it? (laughs) There were manifold temples and shrines to the various pagan deities in Pergamum. There was one honoring Athena, the goddess of victory, one for... Dionysus, the patron god of wine and sex. There was also an area dedicated to Asclepius, the serpent god of healing or god of medicine. They practiced healing arts in this huge sort of quasi-medical center in the city. And if you've seen the medical symbol with the serpent wrapped around the staff, this is the origin of that symbol. There was also an altar dedicated to Zeus, the chief deity in this pantheon. So plenty of activity and structures that could be interpreted as Satan's throne. However, throughout the book, John associates the Roman Empire with Satan. So what the Lord probably is referring to here is the worship of the emperor. Pergamum was the first city in Asia to build a temple dedicated to worshiping the Caesar. And worship of the emperor was mandatory for those living there. And the enforcement of this worship on the believers in Pergamum Pergamum, was worse because the center of the imperial cult, this temple, was right here. So these Christians were persecuted harshly by not participating. Worse probably than we saw in Smyrna. And this is why. The believers were already known for not acknowledging the pagan deities. That's why Christians were called atheists in the first century because they didn't acknowledge any of the gods everyone else did. So because the authorities knew this about them, with the emperor's temple right there, they would target these Christians and coerce them to sacrifice to the emperor. So in their resistance, these believers were called haters of humanity. Since they didn't demonstrate loyalty to the emperor, 
and by implication didn't demonstrate loyalty to the Roman people, haters of humanity. So the Christians in Pergamum had a lot of strikes against them. Remember, the Jews were protected by a a Roman treaty. Their religion had an official exemption. Their religion uh, was exempted from this, not so for the Christians. The church of Jesus was seen as a sect or a cult considered illegitimate by the Romans at this time. But even though Satan had a stranglehold in the area, yet, he says, you hold fast to my name, verse 13, and you did not deny my faith, even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you. So, this man named Antipas had already been killed in this persecution. And Jesus calls him a faithful witness. It was the Greek where we get the word martyr. If you remember, at the beginning of the book, chapter 1, this is how Jesus is described. The faithful witness. As Gundry says, there's no higher compliment than from Jesus than to be called what he has been called, faithful witness. So, even when the fires of persecution were raining down on them and Antipas was killed, they held fast to the name of Jesus. One of the commentators says it this way, I love this, they kept a grip on his name. I love that. Regardless of what happens in our culture, brothers and sisters, Christians are once again being called haters of humanity because we will not bow to the moral revolution, and it's bound to get worse. And when it does, may we keep a grip on the name of Jesus. These enduring believers in Pergamum did not renounce him, but kept a grip on his name. So after the Lord affirms them in their exceptional endurance, he now warns them of their treacherous tolerance. Let's read in verse 14 together. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So, the issue in this church is they're tolerating the false teaching in their midst, teaching that led to compromise with the world. As Joel Beakey says, The church had been faithful under the assaults of the world's violence, but it was yielding to the allures of the world's friendship. So what's the nature of this false teaching that some in their midst had believed and adopted? First, he mentions the teaching of Balaam, a character they would have known from the Old Testament. We'll come back to him in a minute. Second, he mentions the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We saw this false teaching Uh, before, didn't we, in the church at Ephesus. I think it's best to understand these two teachings as one and the same. That is to say, the teaching of Balaam takes shape in this particular context as the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So, first, who's Balaam? Some of you remember, way back in the book of Numbers, near the end of uh, the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. This was after the Exodus, But before the Israelites entered the promised land, they came to Moab, the the, uh, Jordan River, right on the bank, and they could see the promised land across the river. And Balak, who was the king of Moab, obviously didn't like this threat of the Israelites invading. So he paid Balaam, who was sort of a prophet for hire, to put a curse on Israel. Well, God didn't allow that. 
Balaam was not able to curse Israel despite several attempts, including a donkey rebuking him. But every time he tries to curse Israel, he ends up blessing them instead. However, it's revealed later that Balaam had advised the king of Moab to entice the men of Israel with the most beautiful women of Moab. And unfortunately, this temptation was successful. As the Israelites succumbed to sexual immorality with the Moabite women, and as these things generally go together, they also fell into idolatry, eating the food sacrificed to the pagan gods. This spiritual demise of many Israelite men, initiated by Balaam, resulted in the Lord putting 24,000 Israelites to death in a plague. That's the image of Balaam that would be conjured by any Jewish believer. Because ever since that event, Balaam has been something of a poster boy for seduction into idolatry and sexual immorality. So when Jesus says some in their congregation hold to the teachings of Balaam, he means that there are those who, like Balaam, were giving false teaching that would lead people astray into sexual immorality and idolatry. This deadly combination also went together in New Testament times. Now, I think we have a pretty easy cross-cultural bridge with Pergamum to our own day with the idea of sexual immorality, since we unfortunately have many parallels to this culture. But eating meat sacrificed to idols is very foreign to us. So I want to spend a minute on that. Waima explains that when people went to pagan temples, which is a regular occurrence, they would bring a gift, a food sacrifice. It could be grain or wine, but usually some kind of meat. And only a small portion of the meat was actually sacrificed on the altar. So, so a lot of the raw meat remained. And this leftover meat was handled one of two ways. First, the priest could sell the leftover meat in the marketplace to fund the operation of the temple. But the other way the meat could be used was in the temple dining area. They would invite family and friends to have a meal. This was something that happened regularly, part of their culture. But forbidden for Christians because of its religious significance. So eating a meal in that kind of pagan temple would be an intimate practice with that pagan deity, tantamount to idolatry. Furthermore, these feasts in the pagan temples involved more than just eating food. They would party. And they weren't playing bingo or gestures. <laughs> like the godless parties today, immorality was rampant. Women were often brought in to provide entertainment. Idolatrous ceremonies included prostitution. Along with the feast, it all went together. In fact, interesting, one scholar pointed out that every time the Bible mentions eating food sacrificed to idols, it always also mentions sexual immorality. So closely are they connected. This was a big deal in the early church. Remember in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council, when the apostles and elders debated whether Gentiles could be a part of the church without first converting to Judaism. This was a new thing. In other words, could they be Christians without being circumcised? And they decided under the Holy Spirit's unity, yes, they can come to Jesus as Gentiles. But remember what they wrote at the end of that chapter, they also need to abstain from sexual immorality and food sacrificed to idols. Paul also wrote three chapters in 1 Corinthians addressing this as well. So what exactly is the false teaching here? 
Well, based on this background, it probably it was something like this. Hey, there's only one God. Okay, we know that, right? I mean, these other gods don't really exist. So what's the harm in participating? Paul referred to those claiming superior knowledge in 1 Corinthians. And, and just like Balaam advised Moab's king to seduce the Israelites with sexual adultery, which gave birth to spiritual adultery, so it is here. Now here's the nuance that makes the Lord's rebuke hit closer to home. They weren't teaching this per se, the church. They were tolerating it. There were those in the congregation who were getting sucked into it and starting to propagate it. And they were not confronting it. That's a more difficult call, isn't it? It's one thing to say, I know something's wrong, I'm not going to teach it. It's another thing to take a brother or sister aside and say, you're going down the wrong path. You're saying things that aren't biblical. You're you're getting sucked into teaching or ideas that are taking root in your life, and I cannot in good conscience stand by and watch that. This tact flies in the face of the kind of tolerance advocated in our culture, doesn't it? You do you. I mean, you live according to your truth. No, Jesus says in the church with our brothers and sisters, it's not an option. When they're going astray, saying things, doing things out of bounds with God's word, you confront it. It's difficult. But if you don't, that kind of tolerance is sin. In some ways, this error in Pergamum is the opposite error at Ephesus. In Ephesus, they did not tolerate this false teaching, but they lacked love. Here in Pergamon, perhaps in the name of love, they were practicing tolerance, but it wasn't loving at all, was it? It was endangering the whole church. Only some have fallen prey to the teaching, but the entire church is held responsible. This is a really important point for not taking action against it. This kind of compromise with the culture can happen so easily. It's been well said that what one generation tolerates the second generation will accept, and the third generation will celebrate. That is prophetic, is it not? One easy case study is just the moral revolution traced through 50 years of sitcom history. (laughs) What was once not tolerated starts to get accepted and then is celebrated. Daniel Aiken gives four reasons why compromise is one of Satan's favorite weapons. See if these resonate with our current day. Number one, compromise never occurs quickly, so you hardly notice the change. Number two, it always lowers the original standards you once held important. Number three, it seldom is offensive because it's perceived as loving. And four, it eventually leads you to accept what you once rejected and even thought repulsive. Jim Hamilton makes an astute observation about these middle three letters to the churches, three, four, and five. There's a progression here. The first of these middle three is Pergamum today. Pergamum is tolerating false teaching, but not specifically rebuked for the teaching or participating. The next one, Thyatira, is rebuked for the false teaching of one Jezebel, who teaches to commit immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. The third one, Sardis, is already dead. So this is how a church dies. False teaching, idolatry, immorality, tolerated, then practiced and advocated, then dead. 
Compromise with the world is never the right thing and always leads to death. The Corinthians tolerated a man's immorality, remember? And Paul rebukes them. Do you not realize a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? If you tolerate sin in the church, it will destroy others in the church. That's why loving but firm confrontation and church discipline is critical to the well-being of the church, as difficult and countercultural as it may be. Confronting sin is hard, let's face it. It's hard to confront sin in yourself, and it's hard to confront sin in others. But if we don't do it, we start absorbing the world into the church, and we will face the same judgment threatened upon Pergamum. And that's what he explains next. Crucial consequences. Let's read in verse 16. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Balaam was judged and killed for his actions. The church, this church is threatened with the same. Repent or be rejected. Back up in verse 12, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Here again, verse 16, the sword of his mouth. The sword was a symbol of Roman justice, the power to judge. Jesus stands over the church as the judge. In particular, the great end times judge when all things will be held to account. Wyma explains there are two types of swords mentioned in Revelation. One was a dagger, about 18 inches long, carried by Roman soldiers. For you Tolkien fans, imagine a sword of a hobbit. The other sword was a fearsome weapon. Five feet long, two-foot wooden handle attached to a three-foot blade. You would use two hands for this sword, and with a strong blow... You could cut through the shield of the opponent. It was a fearsome weapon, and it is this latter weapon that Jesus used to identify the sword of his mouth. This is not the image of Jesus we generally think about in Sunday school, is it? With a few lambs around him holding a baby. No, this is the end times judge who comes on a white horse with the name tattooed on his leg, not someone you want to mess around with. In this culture in Pergamum, the sword symbolized the power of Rome. The Roman proconsul in charge of the entire province resided in Pergamum. But it is Jesus, not a Roman official, who is the true judge. So as they consider this compromise with the culture, this church, as all churches need to remember, they will be weighed on the scales, not of the emperor much less some politician, but of the Almighty. They will be judged by Jesus if they do not deal with the false teaching in their midst. Now, even though this church is the opposite error of Ephesus, the solution and appropriate action is the same. Repent. It's not too late to repent. Jesus is merciful. We recognize this immorality and idolatry and this teaching is wrong. We turn from it. We were wrong for not confronting it, allowing it, even condoning it or participating in it. From these things, we turn to Jesus. We obey him. You either engage in war with the false teachers or the Lord will war with you. 
As you read the rest of Revelation, there's nothing more frightening to me than the prospect of fighting against Jesus. Now, let's be honest. I mean, this seems heavy-handed, doesn't it? I mean, these people are being persecuted. I mean, can you just give them a little bit of a break, maybe? I mean, is it really that serious? Shouldn't Jesus settle down a little? It, it seems really judgmental. <laughs> yeah, it is judgmental. That's his role. He's the judge. Antipas was a faithful witness who experienced the sword of Rome. This church is in danger of experiencing something far worse. The sword of Jesus. Many of you orchard ladies are studying that great little letter of Jude this fall. Contend for the faith. We need to battle for the purity of the faith once for all delivered to the saints as a church and individually. Note the appeal here is to the individual. Verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear. The cultural pressure may be strong, but by his spirit you can conquer. Those of you who like Star Trek, and I know you're out there, certainly remember the Borg, this massive cube with half-living machines using calm but great force to assimilate other things, other beings into its collective. Their mantra was this, you will be assimilated. Resistance is futile. Well, that's what the world has said to the church in every era, including today. You will be assimilated. You will bow to the cultural gods. And we see people, churches after churches, bend the knee and bow to whatever cultural trend comes in conflict with the word of God. But listen, by the power of the Spirit, resistance is not futile. In fact, far from being futile, resistance is imperative. We must walk in step and cooperate with the Holy Spirit. That's how we conquer. Those Israelites who followed Balaam into sexual immorality and food sacrifice to idols were struck dead. 24,000 of them. Jesus here threatens war against those in the church holding to this teaching. If the church at Pergamum does not repent, Jesus threatens war on them. This church cannot provide safe harbor for this kind of false teaching to fester, or the entire church is in danger. 20 years ago, after the September 11th attacks by terrorists, George W. Bush, in his national address, made his foreign policy clear by saying this, quote, We will make no distinction between the terrorists who committed these acts and those who harbor them, end quote. In other words, if you're in charge of a nation that knowingly allows these terrorists to thrive and prosper under your watch, consider yourself an enemy of these United States. In some ways, this is how Jesus views the church at Pergamum. You may not be teaching this heresy from the pulpit, but if you're allowing this false teaching to thrive among your congregation and affect people's lives, I hold each of you responsible. This situation needs to be addressed, the perpetrator's disciplined. It's really critical to see that the command to repent is given to the whole church. The judgments threaten not only against those engaging in sexual immorality, idolatry, not only the false teachers, but those who are allowing this false teaching to fester and affect the community. Now, more positively, 
The Lord refocuses them on consequences of repentance and faithfulness. To those who conquer, he promises hidden manna. Now what does that mean? Well, remember the manna, the the miraculous bread from heaven, which sustained the Israelites in the wilderness. There was also a a Jewish expectation of an end times banquet. Greg Beale believes this points to the marriage supper of the Lamb, the great banquet with Jesus at the end of the age. So, being sustained by him, sharing in the blessings of the Messianic age in the new Jerusalem, that's what's promised. Similarly, Similarly, the white stone with a new name on it, a stone was given to the victors in the ancient games for entrance into the banquet. So this stone may be like a token of admission to the messianic banquet. The sword of his mouth will not come upon them. And there's a new name on the stone, a new name in Christ, a name so personal and intimate, no one else knows it except the one who receives it in Jesus. A new status. Again, all this connects to the blessings at the end of the age, this new identity of the redeemed, promised to those who conquer by his grace. Now, with the rest of our time, I want to just go a layer deeper in application for us this morning. First, be faithful where the Lord has you. It would be a gross understatement to say that those in Pergamum lived in a place where it was hard to be a follower of Jesus, right? Nevertheless, it's very instructive what Jesus does not tell them to do. He didn't tell them to move. He didn't say, hey, I know where you dwell. I know where Satan's throne is. What are you doing there? Get out. Live somewhere safe. Flee to Jerusalem. There's more believers there. Move to Ephesus. There's a stronger Christian culture there. Go somewhere. Make it easy for yourself. No. They're to be faithful here where Satan dwells. This is exactly where Jesus providentially has them as an outpost. Jesus intimately knows each congregation, including Orchard. He knows exactly where we're vulnerable to the cultural pressures and dangers of compromise. And just like the believers in Pergamum, we're called to be faithful where we are. Joel Beakey says this, brilliant illustration. He says, a ship at sea is where it was designed to be, in the water. But once the water starts to get into the ship, if no action is taken, it's only a matter of time before the ship sinks. Likewise, Christians are meant to be in the world, influencing the world. But the world must not be in us. So the solution is not to pull the ship out of the water, We need to be in the water. Pergamum was in the water. They endured persecution and held fast to the name of Jesus. They had withstood many storms, but now she started to take on water, and that's dangerous. And if not addressed, would sink the ship. Jesus says, you must live faithfully in the place I've put you, but remember who you belong to. Remember your new identity, which has started and will be fully realized in the new creation. You are my outpost in Pergamum. You are my outpost in Centennial. You know, sometimes we can have this attitude, I just want to get away. I want to take the boat out of the water. This is too risky. 
Years ago, my wife and I were having lunch with another couple, and the woman said something like this, my dream is to live in a community of just believers. We're just all going through life together. And I remember we got in the car afterward, and my wife said, her dream sounds more like Christians in heaven than Christians on earth. That's exactly right. It's not faithfulness to pull your ship out of the water and park it on the shore until Jesus comes back. It's faithfulness to be in the water. That's where we were meant to be. Yet to be aware of the dangers we face so that we don't start to take on water. Remember who we belong to, that our new identity has already begun. Remember what name we're holding on to. Jesus has already conquered. He knows our situation, and this is where he has us. And yet, this intimate knowledge he has about us is a mixed package. As Fanning says, whether his all-seeing knowledge of us is a source of comfort or distress depends on our response to him. Which brings us to the second point. Identify cultural blind spots of compromise. We may not have Satan's throne here in Centennial per se, but we have plenty of cultural pressure around us as we engage our culture at sea. So how do we avoid taking on water as it were? Weimar reminds us that compromise can be a good thing. I mean, sometimes compromise is essential to get results. In Congress, for instance, if there's no compromise on a bill, nothing gets passed. In business, compromise is part of making deals to move forward for the good of both parties. In marriage, compromise is critical to avoid constant conflict with your spouse. So there are very often healthy and necessary compromises we need to make. But sometimes compromise can be fatal. And that's the case when you're dealing with the clear commands of the Word of God. James 4 says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now remember, friendship with the world is not friendship with unbelievers. Friendship with unbelievers is essential. Otherwise, we'd be pulling our boat out of the water. Friendship with the world is friendship with the world's system of thinking, with Satan as the mastermind. Throughout Israel's history, they had a tendency, didn't they, to combine the worship of God with the worship of other gods. This is committing spiritual adultery. That's why James calls friendship with the world adultery. You become an enemy of God at war with Jesus. The same compromise was happening in Pergamum. They were taking those ideas from the godless culture around them and mixing it with Christianity resulting in false beliefs and actions, putting them at war with Jesus. One scholar says this, compromise has been a cancer in the church from its inception. You see this with, with Constantine. I almost said Augustine, forgive me. You see this with Constantine, the, the Roman emperor, a couple of hundred years after this letter, identified as a Christian, wanted to make the empire Christian. So now it's cool to be a Christian, no longer persecuted. Sounds great. But Christianity started to compromise and become more like the world and in many ways was no longer the religion of the Bible. In more recent history, the, let's be honest about our own failings, the United States South, horrific justification of the very kind of kidnapping chattel slavery condemned by the Bible. 
I took the title of my sermon today from a book by Jamar Tisby. I didn't agree with everything he wrote in there, but it was a very good book in terms of understanding the undeniable compromise of the historic American church so that we don't make the same mistakes. In our day and any day, the most difficult compromise to identify comes from what we assume to be true because we're born into it. So we always need to be thinking critically and biblically about assumptions we're born into. I'm always amazed in my Bible reading in Kings and Chronicles how you see a king might have followed the Lord, but the high places remained. Isn't that fascinating? Places associated with other gods. Just assumed to be okay from the previous generation is acceptable. Recently I was reading about King Hezekiah as a rare exception. Second Chronicles 29 He said, for our fathers have been unfaithful. Our fathers have been unfaithful and have done what was evil in the sight of the Lord our God. This is exceptional and rare among the kings. Okay, it's one thing to recognize your own compromise. Hey, I've drifted from the baseline. I've drifted from my parents' instruction. That's one thing. It's another thing to recognize that the baseline was wrong. Okay, the previous generations have been wrong. We've just been assuming they were right, but they've compromised. This isn't what Scripture says. That's what kings like Hezekiah and Josiah did. That's much more difficult to do because it's like a fish recognizing what's wrong with the water. So, what are the high places today that we're just assuming because it is the water in which we swim? Let me suggest some potential, just two, potential areas of compromise in our current culture. First, the blending of our Christian identity with our national or political identity. I'm very thankful to be an American, especially Veterans Day this week, so much to be thankful for. So many great freedoms provided at great cost. Very unique nation. Very thankful to have that citizenship. But our primary citizenship is in heaven. Our primary identity is something that's shared with all Christians throughout the world. That's fundamental to who we are eternally in Christ, not our citizenship of a country. And sometimes these things can be blended in an unhealthy way, similar to the way the Israelites blended the worship of God with other gods. Here's just an indicator of whether this may be an issue for you. Are you more comfortable in a group of unbelievers who are Americans than a group of believers from different cultures or countries? Or perhaps a more convicting question in our day, are you more comfortable in a group of unbelievers who share your political views than a group of believers who do not share all your political views? If so, we're compromised. We're not, if we're not constantly taking our thoughts captive to the lordship of Christ and his word, our political identity can begin to drive our biblical views, the reverse of what it should be. Our biblical view, our biblical identity, driving our view of each political issue and everything else in life. This compromise can happen very easily because it is the water in which we swim. A second area of cultural compromise, I'll suggest, is sexual immorality. 
The tolerance of this is pervasive in the broader American evangelical church. And like the previous compromise, social media has exacerbated this exponentially. Not only pornography and the evils that follow that, of course, but also just the infidelity facilitated by these illicit connections. I was thinking, you know, 40 years ago, very few Christian husbands, for instance, would go to an ex-girlfriend's house to catch up and just see how she's doing. Doing so virtually on Facebook is a different story. Listen to this statistic. In 2015, 65% of divorces filed in the state of Colorado mentioned Facebook in the paperwork. This is the water in which we swim. The scholar Craig Keener says this, the Bible is firm against all premarital or extramarital sex and often uses the term prostitute to describe the one who practices any such behavior. After all, if it is despicable for a person, even one in great need, to sell his or her sexuality for a little money, is it any better to give it away without charging anything? Closely related to this, according to our culture, the Bible is decidedly on the wrong side of all sexual and gender issues. Hey, be free from constraints. I mean, be who you want, decide who you are, do what you want. So, we can either compromise and be a friend of the world, James 4, or be faithful to Jesus and be called hated, bigoted, and intolerant by the world. Consider that the Romans called these early Christians haters of humanity. They said to the believers in Pergamum, you hate us because you won't worship our gods. Well, doesn't that sound familiar? If you don't bow down and worship the rainbow flag, you are a hater of humanity. Well, I don't want to be a hater. Okay, the Bible calls us to love all people. What do I do? Does loving people mean I should celebrate things the Bible condemns? Should I compromise on what God's word says? Never. Loving people means being kind. Yes, gracious. Yes, sacrificial. Lowly. Yes. Humble about our own sins. Humble about our own sexual brokenness. Yes, we're no better at the core than anyone struggling with any of this. Yes, but love also means being truthful about God and about his word and about true identity in him, about eternity, about the only way to be saved, the only way to be made whole, the only way to be recreated into the identity you were meant to have. The number of people in churches who have left the faith, apostatized, in the last couple of years because of compromise on this issue alone is devastating. And it comes down to whose judgment do you fear? In Pergamum, the choice was between the sword of Rome or the sword of Jesus. For us, it may be the choice between the judgment of cancel culture or the judgment of the Son of God. So what do we do? Repent and conquer. There are many other potential areas of cultural compromise, of course, but the very nature of us being blind to them illustrates that. But whether it's one of the two I mentioned, 
or something else the Holy Spirit may have brought to your mind, Jesus doesn't just invite you. He commands you to repent, to reject this false teaching, false identity, false living, the mixing of things, identities and gods. It's not too late. And those who do by God's power will conquer. Because listen, Jesus has already conquered on the cross. So rest in him. As it relates to this particular idol of sexual immorality, I'll close with this. Fornication, adultery, pornography, lust. Behind all these evil things, there's something good that's been perverted. And that good is a God-given desire for intimacy, to know and to be known, a longing to be desired intimately. Consider carefully what Jesus promises to those who conquer. A white stone with a new name written on it, a very personal name. No one knows it except the one who receives it and the Lord himself. How exclusive to know and be known by Jesus. This is so intimate and special, isn't it? And it strengthens us for the battle. As Hamilton says, that exclusive knowledge, that private interaction with Jesus that no one else shares is the essence of intimacy. Jesus is arming us with weapons for the war on lust. Do you have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Fight the good fight. Conquer by His Spirit. Feed your soul on the manna that Jesus gives. Enjoy the intimacy He promises and He alone can deliver. Brother, sister, He knows you as you are and He loves you. And there is no love better than His. Please stand with me as we close. Our Father, we're so grateful for your word to recalibrate us to the truth. Lord, may your spirit work even as we go today in applying these truths to our lives. We don't want to be blind, Father. We don't want to be naive to the culture. And we don't want to be cowardly either. So give us that strength to be in the world, but that the world might not be in us. And help us to... to, uh, Repent of things that we've been convicted about today. And Lord, for those here who do not know you, who do not, haven't had this special, intimate relationship with you, may they bow the knee right now, turn from their sin, turn from all their false identities, all their self-centeredness, and turn to you and what you've done on the cross and your glorious resurrection for their true identity and salvation for the glory of Christ alone. Amen.